This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, on the 27th of June last, Michal Martin was elected Taoiseach of an unprecedented coalition of Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael and the Green Party. He has since been leading the government through unprecedented times. So how has the first 100 days been for him and for the country? I spoke to him earlier. Taoiseach, just to touch briefly on the, obviously, the most current issue, the virus and the restrictions that have been brought in. We saw on... Monday night, the tarnished this characterisation of Tony Hoolan and Neffet. Would you go along with that characterisation he had of them? My view, my view is I would have known Tony, Tony uh, the CMO, since my days in health. In fact, I worked with him on the SARS. Um, that didn't become a pandemic, but nearly did. And it was a good dry run in terms of the issues that arise. I have great time for Tony Hoolan. I think he's an exceptional public servant. And... Um, uh, certainly, um, you know, in, in the context of what happened, government were surprised because of the two different advices that came in close proximity to Thursday's advice, and then the urgent meeting that was called on Sunday, and the fairly diametrically um, different advices in terms of moving to a lockdown. So, um, I, you know, that would be my take on my perspective on it. Um, I, I believe Tony Holland and Neffet acted in good faith. Um, from a government's perspective, public health—they they have to look at it from a public health perspective first and foremost, which I understand. But government has to look at it from a wider perspective. And moving to level five with no sense of expectation or anticipation amongst the public or industry or business or jobs—that's that, a very profound and, and severe move. And in my view, the whole idea of the government's plan that we published three weeks ago was to have a graduated move to different levels so that people out there would have an expectation. OK, we're at level two now. We could be level three as we can watch the case numbers growing. In fact, we could be level four and we could be level five. Because I think the days of doing something immediately in terms of moving from a level two to level five and complete lockdown uh, isn't on, are gone really because we have an obligation as a state to people who... Uh, self-employed, people who own companies, who own businesses, they need some sense of what's coming down the tracks. And so from that perspective, we couldn't really, in, in, in my view, so quickly move to level five. And at this stage, we didn't think it was the proportionate response. Now, we do accept the advice from NEFIT that uh, cases are growing um, exponentially, and we are concerned about that. Level three is a serious level. Um, in terms of particularly the hospitality sector, tourism, culture, the arts, the entertainment industry, events, anywhere where crowds are gathering or that depend on audiences or that depend on people congregating, they're suffering to a disproportionate degree, but they will suffer more than anybody in level three. And the government's wider concerns are looking ahead, how you manage this over a longer term. And so if you look at the fact that the first phase Essentially, you're looking at a deficit of 20-odd billion by the end of this year. It could be higher, give or take. You're looking at a similar deficit now of 20-odd billion 
uh, moving into 2021, potentially. We don't know what's going to happen in 2022. So government has to take a longer view as well in terms of what is sustainable and how we manage this. Um, and we've also looked at the criteria that are in the government plan in terms of, you know, in terms of our hospitalizations and ICUs, they're not overrun at this stage by any yardstick. Uh, we do accept that as cases rise, you can expect a correlation in terms of increased hospitalizations and ICUs. But at this stage, the HSC have been clear to us that they, can, they have the capacity to manage that. Their testing capacity exceeds demand at the moment. Uh, that may change, but it exceeds at the moment up to 100,000 now. Um, and um, so, look, we're going to monitor this. Monitor this as I think the crucial line in my speech last evening was that essentially that at this stage we don't think this is proportionate, but that obviously it's in our hands as a people that we collectively or individually can change this and work together to get the numbers down. But it does represent change to the extent that this is the first time that the government has not taken very closely Neffet's specific advice. It does, and that's a matter that uh, causes me some regret. It's not something I, we took lightly. Um, and um, But I do think it's important that it's, you know, that it's understood generally that Neffet will advise. Government has to take a wider set of considerations on board. Uh, so, for example, let, let's go through this. I mean, we all accept that return of schools is, has been very important for children, and particularly disadvantaged kids who come from different, you know, disadvantaged backgrounds. They lost out a lot in, in, in the lockdown. Their life chances are impaired if they're out of school for too long. Um, I think even though we have it in the plan that at level five schools stay open, the practicalities of that, the challenges that grow because parents will get anxious, teachers will get anxious, the unions will get anxious. So we have to factor all that in, um, and the same with childcare. So, um, and there's no guarantee at the end of four weeks that any of that would come back very quickly. Um, the, it's the lower income groups, young people, marginalised, who suffer most in a lockdown. That, that's the reality, and we have to factor that in. Uh, and um, so I think it's worth our while to give Level 3 nationwide a shot. I think, look, the numbers haven't gone up in Dublin. They haven't gone down, I acknowledge, but there's been some degree of stabilisation. Uh, we can stop the growth of cases in other counties by the application of Level 3. We are looking at greater enforcement. We're going to be reviewing all of that, but also there'll be greater guard activity um, and other agencies as well. You mentioned enforcement. I think a lot of people would suggest that so far enforcement has been a big problem. The Gardaí, it seems, are not clear to what extent they should go beyond where they currently are at. How are people to have confidence that the enforcement in Level 3 from here on is going to be any different than it has been here to, for, for instance, in Dublin and Donegal? Well, first of all, in, in terms of even very specific additional resources that have now been allocated as of yesterday's Cabinet meeting in terms of gather overtime and so forth for the remainder of the year, and Michael McGrath's public expenditure minister has made that very, very clear. Secondly, Good, uh, compliance is key to, to getting these measures um, adhered to. Um, and Gardaí have always worked on that compliance principle. You talk to people, you engage with people. So there'll be a far greater presence on the ground in terms of ensuring that compliance. But we will continue, continually review if additional measures are required to ensure stronger adherence um, to the guidance and, and, and to the rules. Um, remember, you know, that 
right throughout the pandemic, the vast majority of people have adhered. Uh, we had these arguments at the time when we brought in regulations to have masks worn in shops, to have masks worn in public transport, and people were saying, oh, who's going to implement it, and so on, and tug of war is going on between different agencies. And I said, look, sign the regs. The public will adhere. The public have adhered in that respect when we brought the masks in and made them compulsory in public transport and made them compulsory in shops. Um, so we've got to work with people. In the through the different agencies, health and safety authority as well, in terms of the workplace, um, and right across the board. In terms of how we got here, Tishuk, um, just a couple of things, just to touch on contact tracing. Yeah, it, it, it is not as sophisticated or as advanced as it is in some other European countries, and definitely in terms of Asia. Another thing, ICU beds. We still not have moved on really from the position we were in terms of the ICU resources vis-a-vis -vis the population at the beginning of the pandemic. And the third thing, congregated settings, nursing homes, we see that that is rising again. There's one particular incident that sounds very bad at the moment. Did you and the government take your eye off the ball over the summer in relation to issues like that to do with the virus? Absolutely not. Uh, I mean, we're, we're one of the top testing regimes in Europe. But not contact tracing? No, and, and contact tracing. We're one of the few countries that to contact trace close contacts, for example, and test them. Uh, Asia has always been ahead of, the, of Europe and America because Asia went through the SARS experience. They also have more authoritarian sort of setups whereby they use police, they use everybody. No, by the way, I commend them on their efficacy in terms of contact tracing. I've relatives in Asia at the moment who you know, feel protected by the uh, approach that they take. Uh, and I think it has taken the Western uh, authorities a longer time to get the contact tracing up. But in terms of our testing, we haven't, I mean, our testing has gone way up now. This idea that has some Relative to what it was, no, but... but... yeah, it was much lower during the pandemic, the first phase of the pandemic. I mean, we're testing far more people now than we tested in March, April, May. I mean, it's, we're now up to, uh, I think it's 90,000 last week were tested. The serial testing programs have been quite uh, expensive. I think we've done nearly 200,000 tests in nursing homes. That's not taking the eye off the ball. And that's uh, since, since July. I see and, 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 and the issue, by the way, in all of the serial testing programs, in terms of meat plants or in terms of nursing homes or direct provision, the positivity rate is very low. No, I think today's, I haven't got the full details of today's outbreak, but I presume it's from serial testing programme that catches it. And that's the idea of serial testing. You could do the 200,000 and get very low levels, but eventually you, you nip something in the bud, hopefully, and, and, and stop the spread of it. And it's either somebody bringing it in from outside into a nursing home or into a direct provision or into a meat centre as the primary source, it seems. And then, and then it can spread like uh, wildfire in certain congregated settings. In terms of ICU, since March, the number of ICU beds have gone up 25%. If you add in now what's provided for on the winter initiative, it will go up 30%. Um, and... and Still way behind the European average. Well, it's behind the EU average, but that's more historic. But it's actually gone up significantly. And if you remember, we were we had a surge capacity during the first phase of up to 170. So again, the HSC are saying to us that they have capacity to deal with this. Now, of course, we never want to get into a situation where we're coming close to capacity in terms of ICU for COVID patients. But what's going on right now, we're trying to deal also with the non-COVID illnesses, cancer, cardiac, other um, issues 
for elective procedures as well where people need to have their non-COVID illnesses dealt with. And that's why there's a high occupancy at the moment in the hospitals because we're trying to get that done. And if we had moved to level five, you would have endangered and impacted, in our view, the non-COVID side of the equation because that psychologically people then stop going to hospitals too as well because they feel the situation's at a higher level. So, look, on ICU, there's been a lot of progress made. The, the winter initiative involves about a 600 million investment uh, up to, out to April. That's the largest ever in any winter initiative. Uh, it will mean a whole, it will mean an extra. And about if you add, since the beginning of the pandemic, has been 890 beds since some extra. Add another 500 from the winter initiative by the, next March, you'll have 1,400 additional general beds yeah. um, in, in, in the system. So we're working flat out to generate capacity where we can, but also critically, home care packages, about 4.7 million extra hours this winter on home care packages, community assessment hubs, particularly respiratory clinics in the community, because the key of the winter plan is to prevent people getting into hospital in the first instance uh, and to have stronger community and home-based care. Ultimately, we'd like to see that become a more embedded feature of our health service beyond COVID. And that's one of the lessons that may be learned from the COVID experience, the degree to which you can use primary care much more effectively and community-based care and home-based care. Well, that's slanchy care, really. It's, it's yeah, but that's by default, <coughs> we're bringing in slanchy care to, 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 to that extent. But but it's also an emphasis on I mean home care is not oh, oh yes you know, absolutely it's something we yeah just turning back just looking at the first hundred odd days three months plus in office Mark Twain the American writer one uh, quote attributed to him is uh, life is one damn thing after another now <laughs> if if you if you were to at some stage suggest that that summed up your first hundred days in terms of office, I think you'd be forgiven on the basis of there was one controversy, one problem, yeah. one after the other, far more than, nor than would normally be the case, you could say. And also, it has been said, you haven't copped a lucky break in the whole time. But has it all been down to luck? Ha have avoidable mistakes been made in that period? Well, I, I, I have a different take on the whole thing. I mean, I think I've been in politics relatively good period of time. Politics is always hectic, and uh, I can remember the, the 90s when I came into government first, there was one issue after the other. And nothing on that scale, I, 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 particularly where the country is at, really. Well, I think, I think COVID, by the way, as a backdrop, it has a very significant impact on a lot of what's going on. So you take the, the, the golf gate issue or Clifton. I mean, that's a COVID, if you, if you get my sense that COVID is having an influence on almost everything that's happening politically uh, at this current stage. But actually, I think a lot of substance has been um, achieved in the first. I've never seen a government achieve as much in 100 days, if you look at it from that perspective. You take the 11, 13 pieces of legislation since July. It's phenomenal. The month of July was perhaps too frenetic. We got 11 bills through and we got further legislation since. Substantive legislation. We established a new Department of Higher Education and, 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 and further education, which is going to be a groundbreaking initiative, which I was part of our manifesto, something I've been calling for for a long time in terms of the future of the country, in terms of investment, innovation, research and all of that. I have a long-standing commitment and interest in that. Uh, we, we got the schools back open. Uh, you know, 400 million, uh, million people back in the middle of a pandemic back into schools. It's challenging, but we did it. Uh, and in terms of the July stimulus was, again, uh, 7 billion intervention, 2 billion in credit, 5 billion between uh, tax and, and, and um, expenditure uh, across the board in terms of trying to keep the economy intact. And the central bank this evening but said... The perception is there. But that's perception. But I and think perception you have, is becomes it's, reality yeah, but in politics. Except that, but also substance is important. I mean, I personally, I'm, I, I mean, I, I'm teacher of a government, 
that I want to see achieving things. We've got to manage the country through COVID, but whilst we're doing that, we've got to get things done as well. And I think one of the issues on the economy is what is the post-COVID society going to look like? And that's why we are going to invest more in climate change and digitalisation um, and around the area of retrofitting. Can we create new job opportunities there? Uh, that's part of digitalised stimulus. The capacity quite isn't there in the state yet to ramp up programmes like that, but we have to. Housing has to be a key ingredient to that, and that will feature in the budget. It's, uh, you know, in digitalised stimulus, I said to Dara O'Brien, look, there's lots of voids around the place. Let's have a very quick initiative. We'll get people working, but we'll also get 2,500 units back into the housing stock. He went at that with the local authorities. That will happen because of a 40 million allocation we made. That's the type of approach I take. In terms of the 390 million for schools to get back, we did a very innovative thing with doubling the working or the, the minor capital work screen. First time post-primary ever got it. And to be fair to education, they grabbed it and I think did fantastic work uh, to get schools uh, enabled and, 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 and ready to go back. And then with the Climate Change Bill, has now been passed in the 101st day uh, yeah. of, the, of, of, of government. And there has, there that has will been be, achievements. That will be published. And, and that's a sub, that, that actually will be a game changer in terms of how our society is going to evolve over the next uh, 10 to 15 years around how we meet uh, our climate change obligations, and also how that influences economic, social, and regional um, development. And that, I think, is particularly... Well, let me put, um, let me put this... Can I just finally say to yeah. you then, we set up the Shared Island Unit, North South Ministerial Council, first in three and a half years. Also, EU Council meeting, very first one we attended, made, it, I think, a, a very significant contribution to that, being a net contributor. We said we think Europe should collectively borrow to rescue Europe from the pandemic and to give the firepower to European member states and to the European Union economy to cope with the pandemic. Uh, and so I think a hell of a lot has gone on and a lot of progress has been made, a lot of achievements. On the other side, yes, there has been events after events that we could have done without. Uh, from the Has there been mistakes? Of course one makes mistakes, but I think on, on the whole, I think the substance far outweighs uh, a lot of the negatives. In terms of the negatives, as you call them, and again, that's back to the perception, you, you, you're a sports fan yourself, Taoiseach. You, you, you're, you're, you'd know the spectre of the centre-forward in soccer who misses a few, loses a bit of confidence that affects his game for a while until he gets his mojo back. Has your confidence been affected by the perception, if it is only a perception, that there's a lot of chaos in government? No, it hasn't at all. I think there's a lot of noise going on. When you talk about perception... But can you be affected by the noise? No, you have to learn not to be. It can be. You can be. You're, you're human still. Like, oh, I you mean, are, of course, yeah. But I mean, you have to develop and build resilience. Of course, one can get affected by noise from time to time. But you've got to ultimately see it as a, as a lot of noise as well. No, you, you learn from mistakes. You've got to make sure that you, if you make, if you make a mistake in one area, you, you don't make the same mistake again a second time around and you learn from it. But uh, again, and as modern politics evolves, there tends to be a lot of focus on... on, on the non-policy aspects of, 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 of the job and of government. No, there's there a bit does, more than that now that no, has gone on I know, for. but there does tend to be. I mean, Oh, there does, yeah, fair there, enough. There does but tend to be a lot of superficial gossip around the place and all but the rest see, of it. What, and, what, uh, everything that has happened was a lot deeper now than superficial well, I think gossip. Well, I think that, obviously, look, you know, I regret very much what happened in terms of the Barry Cohn resignation. No one anticipated that. 
Then that was followed by the Clifton event. Uh, again, no one could anticipate that. What about, but I mean, again, what about perception, for example, cutting the PUP payment on the same day that there's a revisit to advisors and extra... Um, now, I know it might be a minor issue in the overall things, but again, perception. People see yeah, that you could have avoided that. Could have been avoided. On the other hand, you know, uh, every political system in Britain, uh, in, on this island, in, in Northern Ireland, all have special advisors. It goes back to I think Dick Spring would have been the first, and I don't say that in any negative way. I think that, that the Labour Party of that era that went into government. Uh, with Fianna Fáil actually at the time, and I do had a view that there had to be a political element to in, 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 in implementing uh, policy and the political program of, 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 of parties, uh, that it didn't get drowned out by the system, and, yeah. that, and, and that that healthy tension needs to exist, that there is political follow-through on the program for government and that it gets implemented. Um, and I think that that is important. But, I, but in terms of the broader issues, I mean, there's no good day for doing that. There will always be negativity around the appointment of advisors. Uh, if you go back toward, back on the formation of any government, you will find a negative commentary in relation to advisors and so on. Uh, that said, I mean, you, you could say in certain days certain decisions were made that if, to, if you had your time over again, you would have made them on a different day. Right. One other thing that people talk about the government, and it, again, may well be a perception, but it's a perception that could impact on things, and that's the relationship between the constituent parties, particularly Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, and that goes right to the apex. Yourself and Leo Varadkar, prior to going into government together, you would not have had an easy relationship, notwithstanding political differences. And people are suggesting that not just at that level, but right down through, percolating down, that that bedding in, has not occurred. In the first instance, how relationships between yourself and the Tánaiste? They're good. They're good on a personal level. They've always been professional, even in opposition days. I mean, remember, we had to facilitate confidence and supply um, because I have a long-standing view that in between elections, people deserve government. Um, and um, I remember as a young student, the 80-81 period, and we, you know, that decade of the 80s was a miserable decade in economic terms, social terms, and I think a lot of it was down to the instability in the political system and the inability to make decisions. That had, that always left an influence on me, um, and and I, I do genuinely believe after general election, you do actually have an obligation to form a coherent government that can get something done in a three to four year period. Otherwise, if you have elections every two to three years, uh, politicians take short termism to an extreme and you don't get real follow through on policies that matter to a country over the long term. Um, and um, if you take, you know, in the late 80s, you had an election in 80, 1987 again, and I, I ran for that election 89 and two years later, 92, three years later, local elections in between. And where you have that hyper electoral activity, you get poor government in my view, uh, and you don't get a sustained policy focus. So. So, in this context, we've formed a unique coalition government with the Green Party uh, and with Fine Gael. The three leaders do get on. We have a capacity to pick up the phone. Of course, we can have disagreements. There's a cabinet clearing committee, um, which is a coordination committee, which meets to deal with issues that may be um, difficult or challenging uh, and to get them ironed out. Uh, and I think one impact on, on the government is, is, is the COVID context. I may have said this already. The COVID context, and I think in time when history gets written, it, its influence is pervasive in the sense that you could have a week planned and within day two, it's completely changed, as this weekend. I mean, I went into the weekend armed with Neffet advice on a Friday morning. Yeah. And I actually thought, by the way, some places in the country might have been going to level three. And that didn't transpire. And I'm up walking on Sunday, and we're going to level five by the end of the day. So that changed your whole week. 
yeah. uh, on the Monday and the Tuesday. So that's the dynamic. And that dynamic can be, if, if one isn't careful, destabilizing. So we've got to maintain the coherence, the focus, and that sense of resilience not to be buffeted by very serious issues and to keep, um, you know, in, 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 in deference to the country, uh, keep keep going. And, uh, and that's, that's, the, that's how I see it. I think that... COVID context is constantly re-emerging. It's like the virus itself is, is, is impacting on, uh, yeah. on normal policy. You can see it in the Doyle, for example. People are much more tetchy at, so, at different parts of the day. If you look in terms of co- history coalition here and in terms of relationships between leaders, I suppose on, on one side you might have what you might call an Albert Reynolds-Dick Spring relationship, yeah. and on the other, perhaps the other extreme might be uh, Enda Kenny Eamon Gilmore, maybe, you know. Um, would, would, would yourself and Mr. Vradker be more towards uh, Reynolds' spring? No, no. Um, I think that the, the spring Reynolds started off well. It ended badly. I was a TD at the time. I think the Bertie Hearn, Mary Harney. Yeah, it was. Um, I think Bertie Hearn learned a lot from that experience. And um, I think he, he, was, uh, he knew very well how to manage coalition governments and in terms of the parity of esteem, no matter what size each party is. Um, and um, so, uh, and I've, when I met Leo Vardkar in relation to the possibility of forming a government here, I mean, the issue of parity of steam was, was, was central. They felt maybe that we'd be coming in, given that we'd higher numbers, uh, that we'd be trying to lord it and all that. And I said, that, that, that can't work. You, you cannot work in a coalition government if you don't have respect and parity of esteem. And you've got to work a, a bit like, to a certain extent, the European model of trying to get to a consensus on issues. Like form, form, formulating the programme for government took a relatively long period, albeit COVID had an impact because at the time the lockdown was on and so on, uh, and social distancing and all of that. And um, so the three leaders do get on well. It's, it, it's, it's, it's personally a warm enough relationship. We can have differences from time to time and we all have different perspectives. We all have different mannerisms, we have different styles and different approaches. Uh, that's understandable, that, that, that's natural. But we do have a capacity to, to our note issues and not let them uh, fester. The other party that looms large is quite obviously Sinn Féin. And not to put too fine a point on it, I think people, some people might just put it this way. What is your problem with Sinn Féin? Well, I think that's uh, the wrong premise upon which to look at it. I mean, well, you, even you within could, your own well, party, there's no yeah, you, you criticise them too much. You could ask what Sinn Féin's problem with everybody else. Could yeah, be, but I'm not talking to everyone well, else at the moment. No, I'm, putting, I'm posing the question. I, I, I don't give quarter. Uh, but it's more, it seems more than no, no, normal I, political jousting. No, I think Sinn Féin has a lot of capacity as a, as a political organisation. It controls a lot of... It's a controlling organisation. It's different to other political parties in the degree to which it's controlled its members for a long time, be it TDs, councillors, senators. It's whole structure historically around pay, you know, how they structured the wages that went to TDs, everyone's seen as part of the one organisation. And I think in a parliamentary democracy, you know, it's changing, but in a parliamentary democracy, I always would have had concerns about that. It's the wealthiest party in Ireland, so they have capacity. Uh, they propagandise a lot. Uh, they've learned a lot from their experience in the North. Uh, and it's a politics that needs to be combated and, and needs to be taken on because one of their, and, that, and, and some of the exchanges in the Doyle, they tend to keep repeating the mantra in, with a view to sh- having the mantra embedded in people's mindsets that people sort of take it as the truth. Uh, and that has to be challenged every time they try and establish a mantra. Uh, uh, and that's where you've had some of the exchanges. I think on the, on the North and on the... Um, Could I ask you about the North? Do you think they're trying to rewrite the history of the Northern Troubles? It's not trying. That's been part of our project. Are they being um, successful at it with a younger generation? 
they, they, no, I don't think they are, but they may be. I mean, there's always that potential. Um, I think there's no doubt that part of their narrative has always been. I mean, the 1916 project that they had was about saying, we want to give a narrative in 1916 that presents the current Sinn Féin as the inheritors of Padraig Pearce and, and, and the signatories. Um, whereas, in fact, the two parties, you know, the, if you like, the members of the, the, all those involved in 1916, a lot of them joined Fianna Fáil, a number joined Fine Gael, are coming in well. But, like, we don't, we, no one has a monopoly on that. But, but Sinn Féin always wants to create that there's the, this historic chain of connection to 1916 right up, which, of course, is not the case. I mean, Sinn Féin is born out of the 1970-69 period, provision of Sinn Féin, provision of IRA and all of that. Um, but they really, I mean, I was struck by a... Uh, documentary by Morris Fitzpatrick um, on John Hume and it's a film as well um, and at the end of it Eamon McCann is interviewed and he said if you do a tour of the Bogside now he said <clears throat> what's amazing is John Hume has been written out of the narrative mm-hmm. one would imagine that Sinn Féin were the civil rights organisers of, of, of 67, 68, 69, 70 uh, and so they're quite adept at the propaganda war they invest a lot in the propaganda war um, and to such an extent that it's constant um, and there's no counterbalancing narrative around, for example, um, any atonement for King's Mills, any real atonement uh, for Enniskillen, um, or any acknowledgement that, um, for, for, for you know, if you go right through the 80s and the 90s, the, the war was a wasted war. And I've spoken to ex-provisional IRA people who said to me it wasn't worth the drop of blood. Just you, ma- you was, mentioned you was, mentioned that, Kings Mills, yeah. and th- that featured in the recent documentary Unquiet Graves. There's been a small bit of controversy as to whether yeah. or not RT should have screened that. Do you think they were correct in screening it? Well, I think I, again, I have to watch it in its full entirety. I think the Glenann gang deserves analysis. I think what happened there was shocking, uh, and there was collusion. Now, to be fair, RUC personnel did discover and interrogated the collusion as well, and that, that wasn't uh, acknowledged to the same extent. But I think RT have to be make sure there's, you know, that's a matter for RT in terms of how they vet what programmes get on and so on like that. Um, but uh, I, I think there needs to be a full comprehensive, if, if you're doing, I mean, I was struck by Spotlight did a whole range of series of programmes on Sinn Féin and, and the area in the north that never got translated into Republic for some unknown reason. Um, very serious issues um, uh, going across from informers and steak knife and right through to how funding from the northern state and the British political system went from its way into Sinn Féin through offices. Now, again, all I'm simply saying is I think there, there, there's not the same treatment um, uh, or, or those programmes for some reason don't get commented on here at all in the Republic, which I find. But that's over the years. But anyway, this is interesting, uh, yeah. You know, it's just, it, it is. And I think, but to come back to the core point is that, like, my, I mean, there is an attempt by Sinn Féin to say we're the only party that really believe in a united Ireland. And if you don't shout enough about a united Ireland, you're less of a Republican than I am. I mean, that sort of approach is really, in my view, is, 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 one that has to be taken on, and also the idea of the border poll jumping on Brexit to use that as a kind of a wedge to kind of drive and ram through United Ireland in, in two or three years. Some people would say that they're stealing Fianna Fáil's no, they're not, clothes. They're, they're, the, the, the old Fianna Fáil that represented going back to the 30s, 40s, 50s. Well, I think the old Fianna Fáil of Lamas and Hillary and these people would run a mile from that kind of approach. Because Hillary, like Lamas and these people knew what it was to be in conflict. They never wanted to see another conflict again. 
Um, and the point is that they understood uniting, uniting Protestant, Catholic, and dissenter. You don't do that by force. Like I think that Sinn Féin don't lack self-awareness that unionism find them the last group to convince them about unity. Um, and also, you do have to win the hearts and minds of people as well. And it's not just a simple majoritarian thing alone will get you unity. Um, I do think we will evolve. I think the Good Friday Agreement is the key to it. I don't think Sinn Féin has worked the Good Friday Agreement. I think they're agnostic about certain aspects of the Good Friday Agreement and always have been, whether it's a civic dialogue and the absence of it in the North. I mean, they keep calling for citizens' assemblies in the Republic. They've never initiated civil dialogue in the North because they don't want any competition. DUP is similarly with them. And, and, and then in terms of the continued, you know, the executive stood on for three years with the Assembly. That wasn't the first time that happened. It happened during my time as Foreign Affairs. We had a problem as well. Uh, and this on-off nature of using the agreement um, to suit your political agenda has been a problem. Now, I, I welcome the renewal of, and the restoration of the Assembly. I think that's good, and the Executive. And I work well with Michelle O'Neill and Arlene Foster, and I put politics aside. I put my partisan politics aside as Taoiseach when I deal with the North, uh, and I, I will do that. Um, but I, I, I'm not going to concede the narrative to Sinn Féin on issues around the North and the island of Ireland and the whole idea of the shared island approach that I'm taking and the shared island unit that we've established, which I think over time will bear fruit in trying to develop a sensible conversation as to how we can share the island of Ireland into the future in a peaceful uh, uh, and reconciled way. And dealing with issues like health and, uh, and education and, and Cooperation, infrastructure yeah. and getting some real meat on the bone. Just putting politics <clears throat> aside briefly, Quickly, um, on a personal level, how's the job changed you in terms of your lifestyle, family, having being away presumably from Cork more often than you'd, than you'd be accustomed to? Well, it, 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 it's interesting. I think psychologically, I was geared up for it, uh, and I think the family were. Um, so they're pushing me out the door, like <laughs> at times. Um, they're yeah, and they're anxious. But COVID again is dictating a lot of that as well, you know. Um, so when I came back from Brussels, you know, I. I Restrict myself then for the weekend because I was in Brussels at the e council meeting last Thursday. You Friday. can't go home for the week, effectively. I can, but I can I can't go out in the boat and mix. Right. Or you know, so you can do one piece of exercise, I think, and 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 shop. I don't shop then in, in, in that weekend. So, uh, but but in, in in the sense of yeah, I enjoy, I enjoy actually the challenge of the job. That might find strange with everything going on. Uh, I don't have no issue with taking decisions, uh, and I just want to have proper process and engagement. Uh, I'm interested in policy and ideas, and so that aspect of it I, I, I like. What's um, been the best thing about it that in the last three or four months? That aspect of it, yeah. That aspect I think pulling off the return of the schools. Uh, I worked with Norma Foley on that. I have a great sense for education, a great instinct for education. It's something I'm passionate about, always have been. So I, I got a, uh, you know, and I think, you know, I did set it out as an objective for us. Um, and, it, you know, to be fair to the teachers, the SNAs and the school managements, they put a hell of a lot of work into it. Uh, and, you know, the challenge now is to keep our, our schools going. What's been the worst thing? Well, I think the, first of all, I think this previous Taoiseach said to me, you know, that when you sit down to appoint a cabinet, that's when the fun starts. Well, there, there was some fun after <laughs> right, that. Right, exactly, yeah. you know, and you just cannot, there's no way that you have enough positions for people. And I think the fact that two ministers had to resign was, was, was in one case, with Barry Cohen, that was the worst part of it. Um, because they're, they're personal blows to the individuals. You, you never like to see that happening in the individual. So those were the, the, the lower moments of it. You, you were senior minister for 14 years, then you were in opposition for nine. Now, when you were senior minister, obviously you were in close proximity to the office of the Taoiseach without ever occupying it. And now you're in it. 
Has there been any surprises, even for somebody like you who shouldn't have surprises? You know what I mean? There's always something, but you, because you were around senior politics for so long, has there been anything that's taken you aback about the office? Um, not particularly. I mean, I mean it's, a, it's an office that can work as a catalyst to get things done across government departments. So your interaction with ministers is, is an important one in terms of prioritising and getting certain things over the line. So the winter initiative, you know, I would have been very keen to make sure that happened. On housing, you know, I want a strong social housing programme. Um, and in education, I was very keen to, to, to get the schools returned. And I think Norma Foley has been extremely effective and competent uh, as a Minister for Education. Um, but also, like you mentioned personal things, I mean, the security thing I didn't anticipate at all, <laughs> but they're, they're fine. The people. level of security you have to... Yeah, and, you know, I got kind of taken back there. I was going to take for a walk down the daughter there one day, and they kind of said, well, we have to go with you. Uh, no, it's good. They're a good company. <laughs> you get to talk with... But there's some, no escape. You get talking about some championship match. I, have, I haven't seen a championship this year, and that's COVID again, you know. You, you, presumably you weren't at the hurling final in Sunday, no, after I, which there was... You see, I was invited to it. In my official capacity as Taoiseach, but I, I just took a call, having come back from Brussels, I couldn't attend. And it was kind of, like for us as a family, that was poignant because my father was a Glenman and it was the 100 years since Christie Ring was... Uh, and then, I, of course, Coxwell Centre, I'm a BlackRock supporter in hurling terms. I would have had a lot of involvement, a lot of club members there down through the years involved in the hurling hall, getting it established and so on like that. And um, so not being there as Taoiseach... Uncounted. I would like that on a personal level to be there, but you know, couldn't, that's fine, you can't do that. Uh, and the, the football final won't take place now at all next week. Yeah, that's <laughs> because of course. Um, <laughs> well. Lela, you know. One other thing, um, Tishuk, um you're due to effectively vacate the office in December 22, hand over to leader Fine Gael, presumably um, Leo Varadkar. Would you see yourself swapping places with him or would you see that as you having done your bit and take a step back altogether at that stage? Well, two things. First of all, uh, it's only 100 days, so... Um, that, 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 that's it's a long way, a long to, way to go, December yes. 22, yeah. So, and secondly, yes, I do foresee myself uh, swapping uh, places. I think it's important. So that, that would indicate you would see yourself as leading Fianna Fáil well, I'm going to continue on. Not, I'm going to continue on, yeah. I mean, and also... Again, I think it's important that we demonstrate stability and consistency and continuity. This is a new form of government with, with a rotating Taoiseach. We've got to make sure that works, and it's got to work for the long haul. And therefore, you'd see yourself, yes, if it's yeah. up to you, as leading the party yes, in the yes, next election. Yeah, yeah. Taoiseach, thank you very much. Thank you. That's it for today, folks. I want to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you for listening. Uh, you can get us on all the usual platforms. And I'd love to know what you think of the podcast. So please contact me at mick.clifford at examiner.ie with your thoughts or opinions or on Twitter at, at MickCliff. See you soon. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.